Hello there. How's everyone doing? Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Center from Reality podcast. It is Saturday, doing a little short Saturday special, we'll call it. Um, just a couple things I didn't get to in the week that I wanted to talk about. So here I am. You can't get rid of me. Uh, first, first, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, the NBA All-Star Game is coming up, and it's, 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 it's going to be in Salt Lake City. <laughs> um, usually people like to go to the city that's hosting the NBA All-Star Game, and they like to party, right? It's kind of an event where, you know, at least you can go somewhere, party, go for the weekend, have a good time. So there's something ironic and very fitting about it being in Salt Lake City because, look, Salt Lake City, beautiful place, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend staying in some of the hotels there after our little shooting incident a few weeks ago. But... Look, it's not really a party city. I don't think Salt Lake City, with the whole Mormon vibes thing, is known for the partying. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Like, there's a few good breweries, a few good restaurants, but I don't really see the city, let's just say, turning up for the All-Star game. So it's it's definitely better for skiing and driving through and scenery than partying. So interesting choice, interesting choice. Maybe it'll be in Provo, Utah next year. Who knows? But I just had to start with that. So also... It looks like I was um, not correct about the U.S. not shooting down that Chinese balloon because today, according to the AP, the U.S. military shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the Carolina coast on orders from Biden after it traversed, traversed sorry, sensitive military sites across the U.S. And apparently Biden wanted it shot down on Wednesday, we are finding out, but, you know, they wanted to make sure and be safe. They didn't think it was smart. They wanted to do it over water. That all makes sense. So I guess Dan Crenshaw and all them that were complaining about him not shooting it down and being a weak, weak wimp or whatever you want to call him, he did it. They were just being smart and waiting for the right time. So now I'm curious how China responds because this is just another, <laughs> another nail in the coffin to the relationship between the United States and China. And now I wonder if Blinken is ever going to be doing this trip to China for a while. So anyways, this looks like kind of a Top Gun movie at this point, right? And no one was hurt though. Luckily, the debris landed 47 feet or no, sorry, not 47 feet. It landed off the coast in in about 47 feet of water and it was more shallow than officials expected, but everything seems to be good now. I'm hoping they really go look into what was in this balloon. We can figure out what they were trying to do because it like I said yesterday, it was spotted flying over Montana, which has Mal Malmstrom Air Force Base, which has nuclear silos. Not great. And so I, I do think we need to hold China accountable for this. Again, I do think we need answers, but at the same time, I don't think we should go guns a-blazing either. I mean, you have Tom Tillis, Lindsey Graham, and others really demanding answers, which we do need. But we need to be smart and controlled here and not just start a shit show, basically. So... Gonna have to keep following that, but it looks like I was wrong. I thought they weren't gonna shoot it down or they were just gonna let it do his thing, but it is good to see that the Biden administration listened to the facts, did what was right at the right time, and we're moving along. The, the last thing I will add is that apparently people watched the, the, the balloon deflate and kind of go down in a trail of smoke from their houses in Myrtle Beach as fighter jets circled the balloon, so I think that is pretty funny. Uh, that'd be kind of an entertaining show from Myrtle Beach. So lucky them. I kind of wish I got something like that going on. So anyways, what I wanted to do the rest of the episode on is talking about democracy dying in Georgia. 
And we're not talking about the state Georgia. We're talking about the country Georgia. And yeah, there's kind of some troubling reports out out of Georgia. I've been kind of following this briefly for a while, but I decided to do kind of a deep dive over the last day, do some research and kind of learn more about what was happening. And look, if you read any traveler websites, you will always hear people recommend going to Georgia. Apparently the mountains are beautiful. There's a lot to see and do there. And it's definitely on my travel list. And maybe it's a better idea to go sooner rather than later based on how things are going. But other than being a beautiful country, it does look like the party Georgian Dream, which is in power and led by a Kremlin billionaire, is getting quite close to Russia and is kind of diminishing any hopes of Georgia joining NATO, which is too bad because for a while Georgia was seen as kind of a beacon of hope in Eastern Europe and it was kind of a bulwark against the communists, against Russia, etc. But things are changing. Georgia's former leader is pretty much dying in prison in what they call slow prison death, where you kind of just keep giving the person drugs and don't feed them, and they just kind of slowly die. You don't execute them, but you kind of slowly execute them in prison. So we're going to talk about Georgia for a little bit. So starting George Bush, W. Bush, that is, W., was the first president to visit Georgia. I think it was in, like, I want to say it was in 2003. And he called the country, in quotes, a beacon of liberty. And the reason why he was so happy, hunky-dory about Georgia at the time was because its leader, Mikhail Saakashvili, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, was a solid friend to the United States, and he was a reformist. And he was quite anti-Kremlin, and he wanted Georgia to be part of the West, and he was very pro-democracy. And he was the president from 2004 to 2013, if I recall correctly, and he was truly notable because he pushed the country in the direction of Western liberal democracy, and he basically gave a middle finger to Putin and to Russia. And obviously Georgia, invaded by Russia, bombed by Russia, a lot of what we're seeing in Ukraine now, Georgia tested out earlier in the first and second Georgian wars. I've talked about this before, but the Russians, there was a string of bombings going on in Russia, and basically they they blamed Georgia and Chechnya for different strings of bombings. And so before Russia was in Syria, before Russia was in Ukraine, it it, it had invaded Georgia. And so this president was very anti-Kremlin, very anti-Putin. And it's kind of notable that uh, the former, former president, Saakashvili, has actually been able to do this because... Georgia is not exactly surrounded by neighboring friends or democratic regimes. If you look at Georgia on a map, it's bordered by Russia, Turkey, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. All countries that I would say are fairly illiberal. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. And Saakashvili looked to bring Georgia into NATO. And he called Putin so many bad names that there was so much propaganda attempts out of Russia to silence this guy. And... Yeah, he's just been seen as an enemy of the Kremlin. And before I get into more details, I should note that while this guy reformed Georgia, modernized it, and put it on a track towards NATO membership and acceptance by the West, he he did have a lot of scandals, and he was enmeshed in scandal, repression, corruption. Like, this guy wasn't perfect. And I think it was Ann Applebaum who mentioned that his time in office was not some black-and-white morality tale. Apparently, he abused his term limits, used state money to go to parties in the West, had 
there's reports of him doing high-speed car races throughout the streets of Tbilisi, and he cut a lot of legal corners that some would call abuse of power. He used state funds in corrupt ways. Like, this was still not a perfect guy by any means. And even, and, and so I, I guess it just depends how you define perfect. Like, he made the country better, but also, like, he was corrupt at the same time. So it's difficult. And the thing is, unfortunately, because he was corrupt and because he did these stupid shit things in Europe, it was a good, it was a good way for his opponents to attack him. It was a good way for the Kremlin to fearmonger around him. And eventually it was his downfall, but we're not going to get into that quite yet. So... The guy's not perfect, but he did put Georgia on a path forward. And I should also note that this guy deserves credit for that because in the area, especially right after the fall of the Soviet Union, it's pretty rare for a leader of a former Soviet republic, especially Georgia, which was so close. It's really rare for a leader to have been so anti-Soviet, anti-Russia at that time. Because if you look at a lot of other countries in the area, Putin has had a big network of allies and propaganda. I mean, especially in Ukraine, Moldova. I mean, we could go on and on. So this guy is impressive in that way. And I should also note, though, going forward, after leaving office, sorry, President Saakashvili, or I guess former President Saakashvili, actually fled Georgia and ended up in Ukraine because I guess he studied in Kiev. And so he went back to Ukraine. From my understanding, this was because he was worried about getting arrested or indicted at least on trumped-up corruption charges by his opponents, which he did have a lot of pro-Kremlin opponents. And yeah, it's kind of murky, but he got Ukrainian citizenship, lost Ukrainian citizenship, got it back, and at some point actually enjoyed a very controversial term as the governor of the Odessa region, which is fascinating. He definitely has some ties there because they kind of gifted him this position, which is fascinating in its own right. But I will continue because from my understanding is he fled Georgia in 2013 for Ukraine. And I'm going to butcher this name, so (laughs) please bear with me. But it's because of a guy named Bidzina Ivanashvili. And... This is the guy who now leads Georgia and is definitely like a Russian puppet and an autocrat and kind of wants to be a dictator. The Economist notes that Bidzina Ivanashvili is a reclusive businessman who made his money in Russia, served briefly as prime minister of Georgia, and has ruled Georgia ever since um, Saakashvili left. And this is a guy who has been targeting Saakashvili for a long time. He made his money in Russia. He loves Russia. He's quite homophobic, autocratic, kind of a populist. And the guy's not good. (laughs) The guy's not good from my understanding. And he has also managed to erode a lot of trust in Georgia's institutions. He has tried to retcon Russian aggression in Georgia. And he's he's helped them evade Western sanctions against Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. And... The sad part here is that Georgia was on a track to join NATO, but since his rhetoric and what he's been doing in office, and I'll get into some of the things his party has done later, but since he's basically targeted opponents and all that jazz, a lot of NATO countries have now said they support Ukrainian and Moldovan attempts to join NATO, but Georgia is not welcome. And of course, Putin loves this. Putin loves this, but now Georgia is kind of in the Kremlin's pocket, and it all kind of happens, you know, you have Saakashvili flee, you then have Ivanashvili 
become kind of president, but also kind of dictator. And now we're at this point right now. So if this is not bad enough that this guy has basically screwed George's chances of joining NATO or else, other things as well, maybe, things have gotten actually kind of depressing, both for George's democracy and for Saakashvili himself. He actually returned. So, so like I said, he fled Georgia, right, lived in Ukraine for about eight years, and he returned to the country in 2021. And from my understanding... He thought he could return to Georgia and rally people behind him because there was a lot of sympathy for him in the population and he wanted to get people behind him against the Georgia Dream, Georgian Dream Party, which was becoming highly autocratic. And now again, I will just like digress for a moment here and say, I don't like any political figures who have a cult of personality behind them and want to return and kind of mobilize people against another party. I don't think that's particularly effective, and this guy is kind of that. Like, he definitely has a cult of personality behind him, and he does have kind of uh, his own autocratic tendencies. So I, I just want to be fair to say, like, this guy's not, like, the next hope by any means, but it's interesting because he comes back, wants to rally people behind him because the population clearly, like, sympathized with him, but he instead was arrested. And The Economist describes the charges as, in quotes, having abused his powers as president, and they were prosecuting him while he was absent, basically. So he returns, and they put him put him in prison with a six-year sentence. And apparently the six years has not gone well, just to put it bluntly. Um, it's taken a brutal toll on his health, and it sounds like they're trying to kill him. There's a good piece in The Economist that discusses his current state, and he spoke with a correspondent who does the Charlemagne section for The Economist, and he said this, My health is in deep shit. Besides all kinds of bad symptoms, what makes me desperate is a terrible memory loss. And The Economist then goes in to say, Saakashvili believes that he has been poisoned and says he lapsed into a brief coma after an earlier move to a different prison hospital. In another article, Ann Applebaum, who is, in my opinion, probably one of the greatest books of knowledge on this entire part of the world, she writes about how this form of torture was quite common in the Soviet era. But before I get into that, she t she discusses how he's you know been having seizures. He looks horrible. He he went on a health strike or a hunger strike. Hell, not a health strike. Hunger strike. And but also they they've been giving him medications that appear to be slowly killing him. Because they're ones that are banned in most of the West, banned in the United States, but they've been giving him these, and for a guy who's in his 50s, he is just slowly deteriorating. And Applebaum, anyway, writes uh, about this form of torture that was very common in the Soviet Union and in Putin's Russia. She writes, The slow prison death was a Soviet specialty. Not a murder, not an assassination, just a well-monitored, carefully controlled, long-drawn-out decline. Most of the people who died in Soviet prison camps were not executed. They were starved until their hearts stopped beating. And it sounds like that's exactly what they're doing here. Now, I don't have to probably talk too much about this, but you guys all Alex you guys all know Alexei Navalny. He's in a similar situation as this. And it seems to me it's a really effective way of scaring people into submission. And why I say that is because if you're an average Russian or even a powerful politician, 
when you see these people deteriorating in prison, you see them and then you see the movements behind them calling for them to be released. You see the West calling for him to be extradited somewhere. It kind of terrifies the shit out of you to the point where you don't want to be that guy slowly rotting away in prison. There's one thing being shot with a firing squad. It's quick. But, but if you're slowly dying in a Russian prison, maybe, or a Georgian prison, sorry, <laughs> um, you probably don't want to go through with whatever you're thinking of doing. So to me, it seems like there's definitely a reason why they're doing this. They could have, same with Alexei Navalny in Russia, same with Saakashvili here. They could have shot him. They could have assassinated him. But it's more effective, I think, as propaganda and fear-mongering tactics to have them slowly die in a prison and let the public slowly watch it. Anyways, as Saakashvili is slowly dying in this prison, Georgian Dream, which I said is the party that Ivanashvili founded, it's basically held on to power by multiple different things that are all not democratic. They have basically just stoked fears of turmoil, and they've used Russian propaganda to basically say that Saakashvili's return to power is coming, and he'll break the country, and only Ivanashvili can fix it. You know, that kind of I alone can fix this, but in this case, it's the Georgia dream alone can fix this. Ivanashvili is dangerous, they say, blah, blah, blah. Also, the politics of Georgian dream have become very corrupt. Like I said, they've, in they've, they've uh, impeded Georgia's chances of integrating into Europe, and they've basically cut out Western like funding, They've cut Georgia out from benefiting from the wealth of Western Europe. Also, the internal dynamics are not safe or good for discourse. There was the imprisonment last year of uh, Nika Givarmia, sorry again, could be butchering that, who runs a private TV channel that's critical of the government. It's popular, she's in jail, makes sense. Opposition politicians are again under surveillance. And again, like I said, if you get too big, Sounds like they send you to prison on trumped-up charges, and then they the public watches you slowly die. And I, I was even reading in a different article, I think it was in Foreign Policy magazine, that there's a new phenomenon of Stalin statues that are being built all around the country. Kind of sounds like the Robert E. Lee statues that were being built after, like, a, like a century after the Civil War in, in some southern states. Like, people's memory and nostalgia seem to get mixed and muddled. But it's kind of interesting because, I mean, G Stalin's from Georgia, right? Um, but it, it's interesting to see that there's now this nostalgia for Stalin building up, which, again, is also not great for democracy. If you guys, I don't have to explain to that, like, too much to you guys about why Stalin is not great for democracy. But anyways, it's not good, and it just seems like, like Sakasvili here is kind of a, a symbol of... <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I guess it makes sense. He's a symbol of Georgian democracy slowly dying in a prison cell. Like, he symbolizes the whole thing. He's just slowly losing it, slowly losing his memory. And the interesting thing, though, is that the Georgian people are not really for it. Georgia is also far less authoritarian than Russia or Belarus, for example, but it is drifting into the Kremlin's orbit. I do want to make that clear. And The Economist also notes here in quotes, to appease Mr. Putin... The government has refused to join sanctions against Russia or return any anti-aircraft missile system that Ukraine gave Georgia in 2008. 
But some good news, it continues, is that Georgians do seem to object to the government's pro-Russian stances. Ukrainian flags are a common sight, as are houses sporting graffiti reading, Georgia is Ukraine, Ukraine is Georgia. And of course, I mean, yeah, if I was an average Georgian in Tbilisi or any other places, I would probably be worried about like what Russia might want to do with Georgia going forward. And the relationship, just getting into that for a second, is quite complicated because there's a good Atlantic article on this that discusses in quotes here, on one hand, Georgians continue to fear a further Russian invasion, which is unsurprising because Russian troops, some stationed less than 40 miles from Tbilisi, occupy about 25% of the country. Georgians are vocally supportive of Ukraine and large majorities say they want to join NATO. But then the article later in quotes says, on the other hand, Putin is winning in Georgia. The quantity of what appears to be sanctions-busting cargo flowing through Georgia to Russia surged in the first half of 2022. So it's a really complicated relationship. And I I think the thing here is that the people support Ukraine. The people want to be in the West. But the elites, the establishment, the powers that be have suppressed people like Saakash, excuse me, Saakashvili. But then at the same time, they want to be closer to Russia. So you do have kind of a class stratification going on here. And it's not good. And I do hope that Georgia can eventually be what George W. Bush wanted it to be, which was kind of a beacon of democracy in a very illiberal area. I want to end this episode, though, with a quote from Ann Applebaum, because I think it sums it up well. Then I'll get the hell out of here because it's Saturday and, you know, we need to be more positive. So Applebaum writes in quotes here, if not... Saakashvili may well die in prison, but that may be what Putin and his proxies in Georgia are hoping for. If the man who still symbolizes Georgia's old aspirations to join the liberal world succumbs to a Soviet-style prison death, then those aspirations will die along with him. And it's, it's just interesting to see Putin trying to rebuild a Soviet-style em- emperor, empire. <laughs> emperor, no. And... It seems like there's people out there that are willing to help him. And so it seems like Georgia needs help right now. I don't know how you help him. But Saakashvili, I think we need to get him out of there and get him to the West to get him help because he seems to me like another Navalny type of figure, an imperfect guy who does stand for good things even if it's imperfection.